Bruce Edinson is our Children's Commissioner now. He started in May 2017 and will be the Commissioner until next year. I'll be 11 when he finishes, but it's not about me, it's about all of us and a bit about them. So let's go, guys. <laughs> it is about all of us and it's great to have children and young people being asking us some, some questions during this discussion and it's a huge pleasure to be joined by Tam Bailey and, and Kathleen Marshall, the previous Children's Commissioners, because all good things come to an end and so this discussion is going to be some reflections on what it's like to come to the end of a term because we only get fixed mandates as Children's Commissioners and so some reflections on unfinished business or any regrets or issues that have flowed through through the different terms of office that we've had. It's great to be sitting down with you both, Tam and, and Kathleen. Tam, do you want to say hello? Hi, I'm Tam Bailey, and as Bruce said, I'm, I'm the bit in the middle. So I was the Children's Commissioner from 2009 to 2017, and it's lovely to be here. It's great to be talking with Bruce and Kathleen. And Kathleen? Yes, well, Kathleen Marshall here, I was the first, so I was the kind of infant commissioner. Um, learning the ropes and setting up the office and it's great to see how it has developed. Fantastic. I get to be the unruly adolescent um, <laughs> and then it'll be interesting next year to, to pass on the baton. So thinking about ends and so we've got some questions from children and young people so let's pass over to them. Hi, I'm Blue. I'm 11. What about this pandemic? Like, What do you think needs to happen next to help children? What a huge question. So I'm going to use Chair's privilege and pass that to someone else. Um, Kathleen, COVID, what do you think? Well, of course, I didn't have to deal with that in a professional capacity. I just think that from my point of view as a grandmother, which is my main identity these days and one I love, I certainly found it very difficult like, not to be able to touch my grandchildren for a while and to see how they kind of understood and, and internalised that. I wonder what impact that is making on their psyche, the fact that they've had this period where you, you really do keep away from people. I don't know where we go from there. I hope we learn a lot from it. Um, we're obviously going to have a lot of thinking about what the impact is and research about it. And I hope we do learn from it so that when we're moving towards the future, we've got a more informed view and that the decisions that we make are definitely made with children and young people's interests paramount. Yeah, these are, I mean, it goes without saying, unprecedented times. Everybody has been affected by COVID. I think actually young children and young people, particularly during their development years. So the interaction of where they're at in terms of their development and some of the impositions that we've had to have in terms of changes of behaviour, we can't underestimate the impact that that's had. And it's too early to say, in my own view, about what assessment we'll have of the overall impact of it. But there's already early signs in terms of the mental health of our children and young people, which in all honesty wasn't in great shape before the pandemic, but this certainly has had an impact. We know that there's evidence of some differential impact of children that are living in poverty, and we've stalled on lots of things where we were making painfully slow progress. And it feels as if, I know people have been reluctant to describe it as a time of war, but in times of war, we know that children suffer most 
and uh, we just have to bear that in mind as we come out of this. So yeah, it's a it's a very sobering message. The last thing I would say is that there's been some amazing efforts to try and lessen the impact of it. But my overwhelming sense is we'll be dealing with the impact of it for a good number of years to come yet. No, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, it is the biggest human rights challenge that we've had in living memory for many of us. And the impact on children and young people has been really profound. So being the commissioner, the Children's and Young People's Commissioner in Scotland during the pandemic has been an incredible challenge and an incredible privilege. But I often look back on my my mandate and see it very much in two halves, the, the, the pre-COVID time and the COVID time. And simply having to close down the physical office and move staff to, to working from home the challenges that that puts on on staff themselves and everyone working with children and young people, teachers and social workers and everyone else, the real challenges that we all had to make in terms of our own lives and then how that impacted on children and young people and how we very quickly had to move to be changing our work to focus on the legal changes that were coming in to make sure that, that children's rights were being properly respected and they weren't. One of the things that I think was most concerning about the early days of the pandemic is so much of the progress that Scotland had made on talking about human rights, about building participatory ways of working and involving children and young people in decision-making, where Scotland was actually leading the world in some ways. We had some really amazing innovative practice. All of that went out of the window, and children's rights and children's voices were just totally forgotten in the early decision-making around the pandemic. And the pandemic had a catastrophic effect on children's rights, right to education, right to to socialise, impact on mental health, impact on family life. There were periods where children couldn't see extended family. That that really severe interferences with the right to respect for for family life, Um, the impact on education, the impact on health, and the disproportionate impact that the pandemic had on children and young people, but then on particular children and young people as well. And it was those whose rights were already most at risk. Those whose rights that, that this office had been, has been working on for 18 years. And so things like children experiencing poverty, disabled children, young carers, care-experienced young people, uh, children of prisoners, black and minority ethnic children, all of the groups whose rights were already most at risk were disproportionately affected. And then the compounding effect of the protection measures put in place to to protect public health on children and young people really made things so much worse in terms of the impacts of poverty, mental health, bereavement, huge numbers of children experiencing bereavement that hadn't done so before. And so it really means that we need to redouble our efforts on focusing on the rights of all children and young people, but particularly getting their voices into decision-making. One of the things the office did very early in the pandemic was to do an independent children's rights impact assessment, partly that was due to frustration that the Scottish government and other decision-makers hadn't been using an impact assessment model. And so we worked with with partners, um, the Observatory on Children's Rights, to produce an impact assessment. And we used the framework set out by the Committee on the Rights of the Child, which had, in April, the beginning of the pandemic, said that the pandemic needed to be seen not just as a public health crisis, but as a human rights crisis, and urged states to take a rights-based approach and focus on all human rights of children and young people, but particularly economic, social and cultural rights, because we know the impacts of losing out on things like education, kind of socialising cultural rights, the impact on development of children was so profound and also the impact on parental mental health. And so 
our work really changed. So one of the best things about this job is that you get to spend time out directly face-to-face with children and young people. And so for very long periods, we've not been able to do that. And so we've developed ways of, of working online, which has some limitations. It has some benefits because the geographical distances aren't as much of a, a challenge, but it's no real substitute for that in-person work. And particularly for, for younger children, um, non-verbal children, some real challenges mm-hmm. that can't easily be overcome by the use of technology at a distance. And so huge, huge challenges. One of the things that children and young people have consistently said, though, is that they don't want to be seen as the lost generation. They don't like this language of kind of catch up or you've you've lost it. They've made incredible sacrifices in the name of public health in relation to a virus which is least likely to have a major impact on them, but they've made the biggest sacrifices. And we have a duty to kind of acknowledge that and to make sure that we frame our response to that, recognising their incredible resilience, the things that they've learned, the new skills, but also making sure that we live up to our commitment to their voice being prominent in the discussions about what comes next. And so how do we ensure that the children's rights are right at the forefront of the decisions we make in terms of what things look like as we move forward Tam, you you'd mentioned the phrase kind of times of war that the children suffer most. I think that's something that is really uh, profound at the moment where we once again have war within Europe and the escalation of the Russian invasion in, in Ukraine is something that children and young people are talking to me a lot about at the moment. So after two years of having to deal with COVID and all of the impacts on rights to now have the major escalation of war and all the uncertainty that comes with that, really means that that we need to focus on on children's mental health and making sure that they're properly supported. So these are really difficult times, but I'm going to slip in a, a very quick seven-word story because in 2019, the 30th anniversary of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, we asked children to come up with seven-word stories to describe what human rights were to them. And one that, that always sticks in my head is rights matter, you matter, don't lose hope. And I think that's been so consistent in the conversations I've had with children and young people about the pandemic and about other things is that they are kind of hopeful, they're optimistic, they want to be part of the solution and that's got to be absolutely key. I'm Iris and I'm age eight. This is a question from Kiara, who is 12, and Sam, who is 11. Outdoor play spaces help our mental health. We have a park that needs repaired. How can you help us and other children improve, repair and carry outdoor spaces? Wow, this is one I know that is very close to the heart of both Tam and Kathleen. <laughs> Kathleen, do you, do, you want to, do you want to go first then? I think if young people came to me about it, the first thing I would do is go and visit it and try and give it a bit of a profile and then work out who was around in that environment that was most likely to be able to help. There is a definite rights issue in that. As I say, people tend to think that play is frivolous and play is absolutely not frivolous. Play is all about the development and the happiness for children. So I would look at the situation and I would make sure that I've identified the right route to try and and get that 
taken forward. But also, you'd want to ask children and young people what they want. Do they just want the old swings repaired? Do they want something else? What is it that would actually make it an attractive environment to them? And you also have to take into account the older young people, you know, who get in trouble for pushing the swings right over the top of the bar and stuff like that and hanging around in play parks that people think are designed for younger people. What is it that they need as well? I mean, I remember being struck by some Scandinavian examples where what they did for their young people was they had a part of the park and they put a fire pit in it. <laughs> now, that sounds to us really risky. But they had a fire pit. The young people would go and build a fire in it and sit around it at night. But it kept them from being bored and messing up with the stuff that was meant for the younger people or getting chased around from place to place. So I think that's finding out what they actually want and not just having a one-size-fits-all, but seeing what is actually the best way to do this with the children and young people informing the decision about what happens next. I know, Tam, this is something that's really dear to your heart as well. Yeah, it strikes at one of the things about what I've been doing since I've uh, ceased being the commissioner. I sit on the board of the International Play Association, also involved with Upstart, where we're trying to create a kindergarten stage in Scottish education, basically around the importance of play-based learning. Kathleen's outlined the importance of play. I think, I mean, nowadays I would describe it as a biological imperative. You know, it's not just something that, that's important, that it's a right, but actually there's something driven in terms of uh, children's development, in terms of the need to play. And we now know that there's evidence that links outdoor play opportunities or lack of them with the mental health and well-being of children and their adolescents. So the medical journals are taking note of this. So I, I think that it's just one, so fundamental to children's development. And Scotland is, is getting better in terms of its uh, approach to play. It's not going nearly fast enough. As always, I've got my grumpy commissioner's hat on and complaining about it not moving as quickly or as uh, far as it should. And in fact, there's a current consultation from Scottish Government about planning and play standards. And they're using what looks like an unusual way of uh, encouraging the consultation to come from children and young people. So there are developments, but they're nothing like as uh, comprehensive as they should be. And we just need to keep pressing away at it. It's one of those unfinished businesses. Um, and if I was to confess, I would say that whilst I was very supportive of play colleagues during my time as commissioner. I don't think I really spent as much time as I would now because I'm much more focused on that being one of the key things that we need to change if we're going to assist children in the future. We will get there, but we're taking a painfully long period of time to do so. Absolutely. And the point that play was written into the Convention on the Rights of the Child, not for any frivolous reasons, but because of a deep evidence-based understanding of the importance of play and recreation and rest to children's developments. And so it needs to be seen in that context and the link to education, the link to physical and mental health. And then the real importance, as you've set out, about children being involved in decision-making. And that includes things like planning. Mm -hmm. And when you link that to the obligation to use available resources to the maximum extent possible, children have got to be much more involved in kind of budget setting and planning and things like that. How should children be involved in choosing a children's commissioner? I'm Max and I'm 11. What advice would you give to the next children's commissioner? 
These are great questions. And I think particularly in the, the choosing of the, the Children's Commissioner, because the Parliament's got increasingly worse at this, not in terms of the outcome, but in terms of the process. So um, I was going to come to you first, Tam, but, but I'm going to go to Kathleen first on this, just so that we can get the, the chronological flow through. But how are children and young people involved in your selection, Kathleen, and how could that be improved going forward? And then kind of advice for future commissioners. Well, I was interviewed by two groups of children and young people. The first one was a group of primary school children. They looked about upper primary school. There were about seven of them, I think. So I walked into the room and they were all sitting behind desks with their pencils poised, ready to ask me questions. I remember not being quite sure. I didn't know what ages they were going to be or anything like that. And I had a wee spiel about who I was. I didn't know how much they knew about me or anything, so... I tried to keep it sort of friendly, but they did ask me some searching questions, although they do tend to ask you things like, how old are you and do you have a boyfriend <laughs> and things like that, which, you know. So um, if there was a child in trouble at the other end of the country, would you travel over to help them and, you know, things like that. But there were some very good questions. And then when I'd finished with them, there was a partition across this hall with a door in it and I could hear shuffling behind it. And so I went through the door to meet, I think it was seven or eight or nine something, young people, teenagers, and they were behind desks and they had their pencils poised. And of course, they, it was a lot more formal. They had the questions and the criteria for a commissioner and all that sort of thing. And the problem that I faced there was I was already being friendly and jolly with the primary school children, I had one foot still in there and I had the other foot in here and the young people were looking very serious and I had to respect the fact that this was a serious thing for them. So I just had to kind of take that in my stride and try and make sure that I had a bit more dignity, if you like, when I was uh, with the older group. So, yes, they asked me a lot of questions about the remit and my qualifications and all sorts of things like that. So it was quite a different experience. There were reports made of that that went to the Scottish Parliament and then I had the interview with, I think there were seven MSPs. It was like the Last Supper, quite honestly. <laughs> you know, with the presiding officer in the middle and various other people around who I didn't know. And um, they asked me how I thought I'd got on with the young people and then they went on to the other sort of serious questions. So that was the way it was done with me. I didn't get personal feedback about how I had done with the the children. And I think it was good to get them involved. I think nowadays perhaps we've developed our ideas of participation and there may be something that made it a bit more of a natural process or something like that. I'm not really quite sure how. I was glad they had done it. It was good, if scary, to be involved in, but I think it would be helpful to try and kind of develop it further. And because Tam, Tam, yours was a bit different to that, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, but it was still a big room. Uh, it was in the Parliament room. There was, uh, I don't know how many youngsters, the young people, children of young people. I think it was about 20, actually, with me at one end of it and them dutifully sat around it. I do think there was an effort to engage with children and young people and have them as part of the process. And there were a few professionals who sat on in that. Although my sense was that the young people were as nervous as I was. Uh, and eventually at one point I said, look, I know you've all got questions to ask. So if we want, we can just go around the table and you can get your question 
on the table, as it were. And that cleared the air a little bit. It took a bit of pressure off them because they weren't quite sure who was meant to be leading the process or not. And then there was a formal interview with uh, the Parliamentary Bureau. And I don't know the communication that took place between the young people or the children and young people that were interviewing and the actual selection panel. And my observation on it is that I've done lots and lots of interviews involving children and young people. I wouldn't say there's any perfect model, but what I am clear about is that they need to be properly supported and prepared for the role that they're being asked to undertake. Uh, and that's from the start right through to the finish. And I think to go at it in a way which leaves people uncertain about what they're doing, it doesn't help either the the young people or the selection process. And I think one of the areas where we have got a bit more sophisticated, but we've got a very long way to go, which is the routine engagement and involvement of children, young people in the appointment of people who will have an impact on whatever aspect of the professional practices that they are recruiting to. And it doesn't, I, I really don't think it's a one size fits all. And I think there's different levels of engagement, but it has to be done in a way which people are confident of it rather than what might appear to be for the sake of it. That, that would be my observation. And that actually flowed on into my appointment where they didn't actually involve children and young people physically at all. So what they did is they um, surveyed all of the children who visited the parliament to ask them what questions they should ask the children's commissioner. But my interview was entirely made up of uh, members of the parliament. So it was a full adult interview of members of the parliament and the only involvement of children was the survey questions. So I actually raised this as a criticism within the interview, um, which, which maybe isn't the smartest interview technique in the world, but seemed to work out saying that I thought that the process had some questions to answer in terms of its legitimacy because I didn't think that children's involvement and in fact the survey results that they presented to us because they'd asked children what the most important rights issues were. I didn't think was representative either. And so, because they were saying, how are you going to reflect the issues that children say are most important? I said, well, I don't think it's a representative survey. You've, you've just surveyed some of the children that have visited Parliament. And in fact, the things that they came up with weren't the things that I thought would be priorities. So I said, I'd pretty much just reject this survey and I'd, I'd do it in a totally different way um, and involve children and young people in the design of the questions. But also I've got real concerns about the legitimacy of this process. It didn't stop me from accepting the job when I was offered it, though, which is, which is interesting. Yeah. It's fascinating, um, uh, though, that development. Yeah, that, 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 it? that it's got worse. It's gone from involving younger children uh -huh. and older children to just involving some older children to not involving children at all. So a strong, a strong message that... that I've sent back to the Parliament and, and will be, as I step down next year, will be that that's got to change. Mm -hmm. and, and the point that you've both made in terms of, and it doesn't mean just putting some children around a table in the Parliament, there needs to be creative approaches. And when we do recruitment in the office now, we always involve children and young people of various ages. And often there's a creative task and mm -hmm. it involves kind of real interaction with children on their terms. They help design it as well. So it's not enough just to get a few children into the Parliament either. And that, that point you were making, Kathleen, that back kind of 18 years ago, this this was maybe revolutionary, but 18 years on, we've, we've learned a lot. The other question that the children asked then was, what advice would you give to an incoming commissioner, Tam? Yeah, I think that you're never acknowledged that you're not going to please everybody all of the time, but you have to be able to trust your own judgment when 
there's uh, difficult decisions to be made, as there always will be, and you've got to feel comfortable about, uh, I would describe it as uh, living in your own skin. Now, that doesn't mean that the commissioner is the person that is the only decision maker, because you surround yourself with a team that you trust, and you surround yourself with views of children and young people. But sometimes the decisions that you have to make on a day-to-day basis don't lend themselves to that longer-term consultative uh, process. So you have to absolutely trust yourself. I I think people coming into the job should be coming in and part of the selection process should bring this to the fore, which is the value and the respect that they place on children and young people. And the last piece of advice I would give is enjoy it. It's a wonderful, wonderful experience and try and uh, navigate your way through some of the pressures that will be on you. But most of all, enjoy that time and enjoy the role and the privilege of actually occupying that role. Brilliant advice, Tim. (laughs) Kathleen, what advice would you give? I think, first of all, I would say take your time because there is so much pressure when you start the job and... We've had casual conversations about terms of office and I think now it could be up to eight years. And I would think seven years would be good because I think you should have a year to be able to just get your feet under the table, get around, network, because that's what people want to do. They want to hear you and they want you to hear them. And then you've got time for two, three year plans after that before you hand on to someone else who's got a year to get their feet under the table. So I do think there is that issue of being able, being given the space to kind of take your time to get into the role at the beginning. I would also say never give up and don't lose hope. That message from the the seven words thing. And I think even this conversation today about how the very difficult issues that we've dealt with have developed over the years and have come to be accepted is evidence of that. You just have to keep going Stick to your agenda, which is the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and, and other international instruments. No matter what anyone else says, if they say you're being political or what, you know, I used to say, I'm not being party political. The fact that there's a political battle going on about this has got nothing to do with me. And it's when something has become a burning political issue that it's more important than ever that somebody goes in and sticks down the flag of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and saying, this is actually what my agenda is and this is what it says and this is how it applies to it. And then then you get shot. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant advice, Kathleen. This is the best job in the world. I say that every time I I give any speech or speak to children and young people and I think enjoying it, it's key. I'm maybe going to slightly disagree in my advice with with you, Kathleen, in in, in terms of that time for reflection, which I think is an incredible luxury. (laughs) I do feel that for me, it was wanting to come in and just really hit the ground running and really do things like develop the use of legal powers, um, which hadn't been used before. So straight away we were into developing investigations into restraint and seclusion, into the authorization of secure. We were doing strategic litigation. I was so desperate to kind of use those powers early. And I think that was actually a a good thing to just launch into that and learn by doing. I think perhaps if I'd waited and had that time for reflection, I might have got swamped with other things and and those pressure. So I think there's something to be said for kind of hitting the ground running and coming in and having that clear vision, talking to children and young people, and then trying 
to get those things done because I think there is a risk and certainly felt like that after a while suddenly you've got all those external pressures and it becomes harder and harder mm. to um, to not be swayed and, and pressured. But everything else, I think absolutely that, that bravery that comes through so strongly when children talk to us about what they want from a commissioner, being savage and holding those in power to account, but needing that thick skin and having that kind of strong trust in building your strong staff team around you. And then for me, the the huge value that I've had from the European Network of Ombudspersons for Children and Children's Commissioners in other parts of the world, kind of building that strong international network, because it is quite a lonely job um, and it's a very unique job and so within Scotland, and so being able to reach out to those, to those contacts and, again, rely on the, the wisdom of, of prior commissioners as well is, is a great boon. So um, not that I'm suggesting that I'll be offering great wisdom, but, but certain, <laughs> certainly Kathleen and Tam do, and so I hope that future commissioners will rely on that as well. I think we've got time for one last quick question. Hello, I'm Talula. I'm four. Are you famous? <laughs> Brilliant question. So quick answer from four-year-old Tallulah. Uh, Tam, are you famous? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you are for a, for a split second whenever you're going somewhere and people recognise you. But other than that, no. Kathleen, are you famous? I think sometimes when I was in the job, I felt I was more infamous than famous, I have to say. One of the strange things is actually people treating you as a... A visiting dignitary, I found that quite difficult to get used to and it's quite nice to get out of that again and just be an ordinary person and be a granny and have lots of relationships with children and young people. And you stole my line on, on infamy, actually. I, I think probably more infamous, particularly in the in the age of social media. Um, I, I certainly get a lot more criticism than praise. And so you're kind of famous by the fact that, that people know who you are enough to, to be very critical of you, particularly on social media. But I think that privilege, though, that we have rather than fame in terms of maybe a little bit like the Queen that the world smells of paint, um, that people do make a really special effort. And I think that's important because it adds to the importance of the role. And certainly in other countries where maybe there's more hierarchy involved, there's a real, really strong sense that you need to elevate the importance of the office rather than the individual because the office of children's commissioner is something that's very special and very important and very powerful. Um, whereas we as individuals have this privilege for, for a short period and then like Doctor Who, another person miraculously <laughs> comes and takes over. Thank you both so much for this incredible opportunity to finish the, the third of our three podcasts and, and focusing on that very difficult period of stepping down. Personally, I've learned so much from both of you and, and I think being the third commissioner is, is such a privilege and having learned from the incredible achievements that the commissioners that came before me have done. And it's going to be very sad for me next year passing on the baton to someone else, but it's important that we do that and that the mandate is refreshed. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing what comes next for this amazing office of the Children and Young People's Commission of Scotland. Any final reflective words from you, Tim? Yeah, it's been lovely actually speaking to both yourselves. I pick up a real sense of uh, unfinished business, but pointing in the right direction. So it's a privilege to have been part of it. Thanks, Tim. And final words from you, Kathleen? Well, I hope they'll be having a centenary celebration of the Children's Commissioner's Office in 2104 or something. We won't be around to see it, but there will always be a need for a role like this because you're never going to get everything perfect. And even when you have achieved something, new problems crop up or other things 
slip back. I hope that the office continues to be as strong as it has been and it's been fantastic to catch up with everyone and hear about all of the good work that's still going on. Fantastic. And thank you both. I think that's a lovely way to round off. And I'm, I'm going to give the last seven words in our podcast to some of the young people who put in their seven word stories for the 30th anniversary. One of them is be bold, be brave, speak out. Thanks a lot. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to us. Scotland's Children's Commissioner at 18 is a bespoken media production produced by Amanda Hargreaves with assistance from John, one of the Commissioner's young advisors. Music created by young people, Praise, Jack, Sophia, Krista, Vicky, Logan and Maria from Systema Scotland's Big Noise Tory programme in Aberdeen. Sound design by Joel Cox.